Maybe I want to have to become one of those super delegates where they pass money out. You get rich by being a super delegate. That's not my side. I know it's not your side, but I don't care what side it is. I don't care. That's a deal, isn't it? They pass money out, and then uh, yes, your vote goes to the highest bidder. I don't know how that works. That's pretty good. I like that. Also, uh, Troy wanted to announce that we're going to have a President's Council meeting right after the uh, class today. So if you are on the President's Council, we'll meet over in that corner right after this class. Also, today the lunch bunch is going to the Lakewood Country Club. And if you would like to go to lunch uh, at the Lakewood Country Club, you can see Glenn Johnson. He's right here at this table, and he'll tell you how to do that. Okay, well, we're going to begin a new section in the uh, Gospel of Luke today. So take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to pick up at verse 14. Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. The first section of the Gospel of Luke tells about the prophecies concerning the birth of John the Baptist and, John, and Jesus and then their births and then how uh, John baptizes in the wilderness and how Jesus is baptized by him in the temptation. Now, in 4.14, we have what is known as the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And I'll read just a portion of that verse. This is Luke 4.14. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, this section begins to tell us of Jesus' public ministry, and he begins it in Galilee, which is in the north. And this section will continue all the way over to chapter 9 and verse 50. And if you look over at chapter 9 and verse 50, you'll see where this section of, God, of Luke's gospel ends. Chapter 9 and verse 50. They, uh, and you see red letters, and this is Jesus' last statement as he ministers in Galilee. And then in verse 51 it says, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go where? To Jerusalem, which is in the south. So from 414 to 950, we have Jesus ministering in Galilee, and then beginning in 951, he then goes down south, and he begins to minister in Jerusalem. When he does, they're going to have to go through Samaria. His disciples have questions. We're going to go through that unclean territory? And uh, then he he eventually uh, die on the cross and be raised from the dead. So 414 to 950, Jesus ministering in Galilee. I don't believe that means he never goes to Jerusalem because he probably goes down there for a feast or two. But mainly his ministry is in the north. Now let's look back at 414 and let's read that those first two verses there, 14 and 15. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and... The news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in there, meaning the Galilean synagogues, being glorified by all. Now this is a summary statement. Probably from the temptation uh, to, his, uh, to what's going to be described beginning in verse 16. And, uh, there's probably an interval. Could be as much as a year, we don't know. But this summarizes whatever happens in the interval. And what we see is that Jesus is described as a charismatic leader because it says he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And 
It's in that same strength he went and he faced Satan in the wilderness. Now he's going to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to preach the gospel. He's going to heal people. He's going to cast out de demons. And he does all this through the Holy Spirit. And it says, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which I told you is up north. That's an <laughs> agricultural fishing area. That's the, the basis for the economic system is agricultural and fishing. And it was composed of a peasant society. So when Jesus ministers, he will be ministering to very common people, the lower echelons of, echelon of society. And then we see he had a reputation. It says news of him went out through all the surrounding region. So he, his word spreads because he's doing these tremendous, powerful things uh, through the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we see in verse 15 that he taught in their synagogues. So we see a lot of his ministry was in the synagogues. And he was glorified by all, which means that his, his reputation didn't only spread, but their opinion of him was very high. He was honored by everybody. So everywhere he went, he was honored because he did these tremendous things. He was received warmly. Now that's a summary statement. That's generally how Jesus' ministry was. But you're going to see there is an exception. And Luke's going to put the exception right here, where he's not received so warmly. Okay? So let's look at verse 16. And we're going to cover verses 16 through 30. That, uh, that makes up a little portion of this larger section. Notice it says he came. He came to Nazareth. That's where we begin. Look at verse 30. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Verse 16, he came. Verse 30, he went. He comes to Nazareth, which is his hometown, and he's going to minister there. He's not going to be received warmly this time, and therefore he will leave that area and he'll go to other cities in Galilee. So you need to see that, okay? So here's what it says. He came to Nazareth where he was brought up, means his hometown. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read meaning reading the scriptures. And he was handed the book, or more literally, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And when he opened, or better, unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is passage, which is in, in most Bibles, in red letters, is a quote from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And that was the portion of the Old Testament that he opens up to and he reads. Now immediately I want you to notice three things, three key statements that he makes. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a fact. Number two, same verse. He has anointed me. That's a fact. He has anointed me. And then number three, he has sent me to heal. He has sent me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He has anointed me, and he has sent me. Now, there's something common about each one of those statements, and it's the word me. You see that? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has sent me, see? He's anointed me. So Jesus applies that Isaiah 61 passage to himself. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He applies that to himself. When did that happen? At his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He says, because he's anointed me. And God anointed him. The Spirit came upon Jesus uh, as a dove. And watch this. What's the reason? To preach. He was anointed to preach. To preach to whom? To preach to the poor. Does this mean physically poor or spiritually poor? Yeah, we all want to say spiritually poor because we're Americans in the 21st century. Everybody was poor. Remember, I told you about 90% of the population was poor. And he's going to be preaching in Galilee, which is a peasant society. The poor in this case means people who are without status. Without status before God and without status before men. Now you say, well, how can you be without status before God? Well, if you were unclean or you were a leper or people like that, those were people who were without status. They were the outcast and they had no status in society. So these most likely would be the poor. So at his baptism, Jesus is anointed to preach the gospel to the people who are outcast. And then it says, he sent me. So not only was he anointed or empowered to do his ministry, he's then commissioned to do his ministry. The Holy Spirit commissions him, God commissions him through the Holy Spirit. And he sends him out. Now watch this. I want you to look next at the infinitives. You remember what those are? The, the words that begin with, the, this little sections begin with the word to. Two. Now watch this. He sent me out. Two. Number one. Two. Heal the brokenhearted, the emotionally crushed. Now some of your translations don't have that verse in there. Uh, if you have a New American Standard, it's probably not in there. Okay? New King James has it in there. But whether that's in the text or not... We have three more twos. Now watch this. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now did you notice in those twos, to proclaim liberty and to set at liberty. You see that? To proclaim liberty, that's the first two, and to set at liberty is the second two. What do those statements have in common? The word liberty. First, he's to proclaim liberty. Second, he's going to bring about the liberty. And he's going to do it through the Holy Spirit. He's going to proclaim liberty. He's going to announce liberty to the captives. And then he's going to set at liberty those who are oppressed or those who are captive. Now let me ask you this. That word liberty means release. He's going to announce the release of the captives. He's going to set, or he is going to 
perform the releasement of the captives or the oppressed. Now, are we talking about spiritual captives? Are we talking about physical captives? You might want to take a guess at that. The answer is yes, okay? <laughs> Remember this. When Isaiah 63 was written, the Jews were in Babylonian captivity. Were they physically oppressed? Yes, they were physically oppressed. And Isaiah talks about the Jews being released and going back to their promised land. And in time, there's a small remnant that go back. And you know of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. One reestablishes the law, one reestablishes the wall, and one rebuilds the temple. But that's just a small remnant. God also says through Isaiah in this passage that there's coming a day when all the captives will be set free. When the Messiah will come and he will set the captives free. Now, the Jews, when Jesus is speaking, is under, are under captivity as well, aren't they? They are being oppressed by another evil empire called the Roman Empire. And they are being oppressed by Caesar. And so when Jesus talks about setting the captives free, at least to those who heard it, it meant Messiah's coming. We're going to be, Messiah's going to come and take over the throne of David and he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and we're going to be set free and we're not going to be oppressed anymore. At least they would be taking it that way. And indeed, that's what Jesus is going to do, because in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, remember what it says? He'll sit on the throne of his father David, and he will overthrow the other kings of the world. So there is a physical dimension to this setting the captives free. And also what he's going to do, he's going to go into the territory that Rome controls. And who, by the way, controls Rome? Who's the leader of Rome? Caesar. And who's the leader behind Caesar? Satan. And so he'll go right in. You know what he'll start doing? Casting out demons. That's a physical thing as well as a spiritual thing. He'll start healing all who are oppressed of the devil. That's a physical thing as well as a spiritual thing. See, he's setting the captives free. When he ministers, he goes right in and he sets the captives free. In fact, it says in this one passage that he's going to proclaim liberty in verse 18. It says he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. And if you want to know what it means, and recover the sight of what? The blind, people who are blinded by Satan, people who are physically blind, and he's, he's done it. Jesus opens their eyes. That's one of the marks that the Messiah comes. In Isaiah 35, remember we've looked at that passage before. The blind eyes shall be opened, the lame shall be walking, the deaf will receive their sight, tongues will be loosed. And so when he talks about, he says, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Good news to the poor. What would good news to a poor person be? A kingdom where there's milk and honey? A kingdom where everything flows? A kingdom where you're no longer a slave? A kingdom... <coughs> that would be good news, wouldn't So there's always a physical dimension to salvation. Salvation is wholeness. It involves more than just forgiveness of sin, although it does do that. 
There's more to that. One day, Christ is going to overthrow all the kingdoms of the world, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. Christ will rule from a throne on earth, and there will be an earthly kingdom where there is equality for all. That's why I say salvation is physical as well as spiritual. In the end, it's even physical. You see that? That makes sense to you? Still with me or have I lost you? Okay, so there's a physical dimension here. Now look at the next two in verse 19. Anointed Christ to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is found in Leviticus chapter 25. If you understand the acceptable year of the Lord, or the year of Jubilee, you'll understand a lot more of what this passage means. So let's take our Bibles, mark this spot, and go to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Very interesting. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 25. And when you get there, you'll probably have a title in your Bible somewhere around verse 8 that says, The Year of Jubilee, or something along that nature. And look what it says. Here's what God tells Moses. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. That would be 49 years, right? And the time of the seven Sabbaths of the years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of jubilee to sound. On the tenth day of the seventh month of the Day of Atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all of your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim what? Liberty. Throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family. What does that mean? Well, people would get themselves in debt. And they'd have to sell themselves to as indentured servants to pay off the debt. And they'd be separated from their family. Some who owned land would have to get in debt. Let's say Dr. Davis is sitting here today, and I borrowed money from him. I couldn't pay him back. He said, well, I want your land. I have to give him his land. But on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, guess what? Debt's cleared. Land's returned. Families are restored. See, that's what it's describing here. So once you see that, you start understanding what Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 12. For it is the Jubilee that shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor, or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Remember he said he was going to set at liberty those who are oppressed? See this? According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years... You shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. 
for he sells to you according to the number of years of the crop. Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So here it is. I need to borrow money. There's uh, ten more years to the Jubilee. Ten more years to the Jubilee. So I uh, need to borrow money, and I've borrowed from Dr. Davis. And he gives me the money. Now he figures, well, in ten years, I have to give him back. He's going to even have to pay. The, let's say that uh, he says, well, I've got ten years. And uh, let's suppose that he doesn't pay back the loan that I give him. I'm going to get his land. Now let's say he pays back for about two years and he can't pay anymore. Well, that means I'm only going to get his land for how many years? Eight years. So based on how many years were left to the Jubilee, that determined how much people would loan you and, and all these kinds of stuff and how much land you'd put up as collateral. I'm not going to put everything up for collateral if I'm not going to get it back for 50 years, but if I can get it back in five years, I might put it all up for collateral because I know that at the 50th year, Dr. Davis has to give it all back. It all comes back to me. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, that's how it works. It's fair because he's made the deal based on the number of years that are left. Does that make sense to you? Now, you look over at uh, verse 39. Verse 39. Same chapter. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you. Now, these are two Jews. And I become poor, and I say, well, I can't pay my debt. So he says, well, why don't you start working for me? You should not compel him to serve as a slave, but as a hired hand and as a sojourner shall be with you, and shall serve you until what? The year of Jubilee. Then he shall depart from you, he and his children with you, and shall return to his family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves, and you shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear the Lord your God. <clears throat> so, the year of Jubilee was a year of release. It was the day you were set free. It was a day of liberty, and debt was canceled, indentured servants were freed, land was returned. Now why? Because we don't own any of it. This is the whole thing behind this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he, we're even his. And so he doesn't have a right to own me. He doesn't have a right to own the land. Because the land isn't even mine. I'm a steward of the land. God, remember, he gave you, this is my land and I'm going to give it to you as I wish. So as a result of that, on the 50th year, there was a year of Jubilee. Well, in time, we don't even know whether the Jews eventually actually even practiced this. They were supposed to. They did there were a lot of things they didn't do that they were supposed to do. But the year of Jubilee, the prophets began to see the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth as a year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee became symbolic of the kingdom that God was going to establish on earth. When everything was going to be restored and people who were oppressed and captive would be released and they would inherit the earth of the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, with that, go back to Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61. See, in Isaiah 61, he, and we'll look at uh, Luke 4, verse 19, which is quoted from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 
says that there's a future year of jubilee. And Jesus applies it to himself. Me, me, me. He says, I'm the one that will bring it in. Now look at verse 20. That's Jesus' message. That would be a great message. That's a great message for any of us. Look at verse 20. Then he closed the book, he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the, tent, the attendant. The attendant is a person who would then put it in a cabinet. And Jesus sat down. That means he sits down to teach, like a rabbi. He's read it, now he takes his seat, everyone's there, and he's ready to teach, like a rabbi. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were waiting for him to begin his teaching of the text. Now he's going to explain the text. And he began to say, verse 21, Today, this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. In some sense, the kingdom is, been, is inaugurated in the person of Christ. Meaning today, right now, the kingdom has begun. It's, be, it's, it's, uh, it's dawning. I use the word inaugurated because I think that's a great word. The kingdom was, an, as it was inaugurated by Jesus even when he was on earth. Uh, we'll have a president that will be elected in November, and then in January he'll be what? Inaugurated. That's just the beginning of his service as the president. That's just the start. We don't know what kind of a president he'll be one way or other. That's just the beginning, when he's inaugurated. Then it goes for four years, and he may end up going for eight years. So Jesus says, today, this kingdom scripture, in a sense, is fulfilled in your hearing. And based on the three me's in verses 18 through 19, and the twos in 18 and 19, uh, we know that Jesus not only announces the kingdom, but he's the one that causes it or brings it in. So, what kind of response is he going to get? Let's find out. Look at verse 22. It's very interesting. It's a mixed response. So all bore witness to him. They said, yep, that's what the scripture says. And they marveled at the gracious words which, he, which proceeded out of his mouth. They were impressed. They said, these are impressive words. These are exciting words. The kingdom's arriving? Well, that's the positive response. But there's a negative response. And then look what they said. Wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's son? What's he talking about bringing in the kingdom? This is Joseph's son. How can he bring in the kingdom? Who does he think he is? Joe? You know Joe? It's Joe's son. Now, they believed the truth of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But they can't believe Joseph's son's the one who's going to bring it in. Now, we know that he's not Joseph's son. Because in the genealogy it says, supposed son of Joseph. But we know he's whose son? God's son. That's a secret that we're let in on. That that audience wasn't let in on. When they heard it, they didn't see Jesus as the Son of God. They saw him as the hometown boy. And you know what that's like. So, and what they can't accept is Jesus claimed that he's 
God's son, that he's the Messiah who's actually going to do it, that he represents God on earth. That's what they can't accept. So now Jesus gives a second speech. He adds a little bit to his sermon. In other words, the teaching in verse 21 isn't the end of it. Now, I don't think that's all he said. He probably said more than that. He probably said five or six sentences. You know, that's definitely a summary of what he said in 21. Now, look at what he says in 23. Then he said, you will surely say this proverb to me. So I know what you're thinking. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country or your own country. See, Jesus knows their thoughts and he... He comes up with a proverb, and he says, I know what you're thinking, a maxim. He says, uh, you're, you're thinking, uh, you know, what does all this stuff mean? Uh, uh, they can't figure out who he is, and they say, well, if you're the Messiah, then just start doing, he says, heal yourself. In fact, that's the first thing he says there, isn't it? Just heal yourself. Start with yourself. Uh, now, what is the meaning of that? Well, it's like, it's like a guy's a carpenter or a guy's an auto mechanic. And he, he's a carpenter. He fixes everybody else's house. But guess what he does and never does? Never fixes his own house. He's an auto mechanic. He fixes everybody else's car, but his car is always broken down. So what they're saying is, Jesus said, I know what you're saying. Position, heal yourself. Start right here. And then the next statement is, what you've done in Capernaum, let's see you do it right here in your hometown. Well, what did he do in Capernaum and the other? Remember I told you verses 14 and 15 were a summary statement. There could be an interval of a year between verses 13 and verses 16 right here. So what was he doing? Well, remember he went to Cana of Galilee. What did he do in Cana? He changed water into wine. That was his first miracle. Remember that? They say, well, if you're the Messiah and you're a miracle man, well, why don't we, we've heard about you, your reputation, news has preceded you, and we've heard about your reputation, now uh, let's see you do a miracle right here, do one right here. Start right here. So look what he said, verse 24. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. You familiar with that passage? No prophet. Another one says, no prophet receives honor in his own country. Remember another time it says when he was in Nazareth, he couldn't heal because they lacked something. What was it? Faith. Faith. So he says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he gives two illustrations. Illustration number one, Elijah. Look at verse 25. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel. Now listen very carefully to what he says. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. So, was all of Israel in need? Yes. But who did Elijah go to? A person who was oppressed, a widow. And a widow of Sidon, which means she wasn't even Jewish. 
He went to someone who was an outcast. That's Elijah. Then look at the second illustration, Elisha, verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel. Now, would you say a leper is unclean? Would that be an outcast? A poor person certainly would. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, meaning they had a lot of need there. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the what? Oh, a Syrian, another non-Jew. You see, they didn't, weren't able to minister. Even though there was great need in their own country. So we have people who are socially and religiously disenfranchised. People who could never step foot inside of a temple. People who were outcasts. People you wouldn't even get within 100 feet of. You'd say, unclean, unclean. People who weren't Jews. And that's who they ministered to. See, this is the good news to the poor. This is the setting of the captives free. Well, if you want to know who the poor is and you want to know who the captives are, it's people like widows and lepers and outcasts and disenfranchised and people who don't have a relationship with God and don't have a relationship in society. In a sense, I believe that these two illustrations that Jesus gives is a foreshadowing of his ministry to the Gentiles. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so he turns his face toward the Gentiles. To the Jew first, yes. But then, to the Gentiles. For God so loved what? The world. See, so here's the foreshadowing. Now look at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. That got a man. He wasn't going to perform a miracle. He wasn't going to do what they asked him to do. He said, no, I'd probably just go somewhere else like Elijah and Elisha did. And so they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. They're so enraged that they want to kill him. They think he's a false prophet. He's Joe's son. They do not accept him as the Messiah. Now last week, I don't know what this actually means, but I'm giving you some options here. <clears throat> Remember last week, Satan took him up to the temple and said, Jump! God will come down and swoop you up. You won't even stub your toe. Remember that? But here's another option. Here's another time when they're just trying to get him over the edge, get him over the cliff, trying to kill him. Look at verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. He was delivered, wasn't he? Ah, he, wasn't. he wouldn't have been delivered if he tried to test God. But in this case, there's a real need where someone's trying to kill him. And guess what? He just passes right through them. And he went on his way. Now, he may be trying to relate that back to the temptation and, and that whole thing in Psalm 91. Or... What we might, what Luke might want us to get from this is that from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was opposed. 
And this, just as he was opposed and persecuted, this prefigures his crucifixion. It's going to start that way, and it's going to end that way, and eventually they're going to get him. But the fact that verse 30 says, and he passed through their midst and he went on his way, could also be a prefiguring of the resurrection. So in the end, yes, they get him, but guess what? He still escapes. Because God raises him from the dead. We're just not sure exactly if Luke wants us to get that lesson. But what we do know is from the start, here in his own hometown, he's opposed and they try to kill him. And he just passes through the midst of them. Sort of sounds sort of miraculous, doesn't it? Whole gang trying to get him, and somehow he gets out and he escapes. Either way, what we know is that today the scripture is fulfilled in our hearing. And if it was fulfilled back there, guess what? It means there's a sense in which we are to be laborers in the vineyard. We are to be part of the kingdom. We are to be ministering. We are to be doing with the things that Jesus does. We are his ambassadors. We should be proclaiming liberty to the captives. We should be helping the captives to be set free. We have a kingdom ministry as well. And so this is how Luke starts off his launching of Jesus' ministry. Let us know that Jesus, he identifies Jesus, he tells us Jesus' mission, and he tells us there's going to be opposition right from the start, all the way to the end, but guess what? He gets through it. And guess what? We'll get through it too. We'll pick up next week at verse 31 where Jesus now confronts the powers of Satan, the powers behind the kingdom, and he cast out unclean spirits. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture and how important it is uh, for us to understand the, the very first sermon that we have recorded In the scriptures that Jesus gave, this is the foundation message for all of his messages. Help us, Lord, to grab a hold of it. Help us to find the hope that's in it, that we too have been, been set free. We've been set free from your wrath, and Lord, one day we'll be set free from every physical ailment we have, because we too will be raised, and we too will inherit the earth, and we will have a, a, everything will be restored to to the glory that there was in the garden. Paradise lost will be paradise regained. So Lord, help us to find hope in this message. Help us to find our mission in the message. To go out and proclaim the good news as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.